0: Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family Radio. Thank you for joining us today. We begin a mini-series I'm entitling, What to Do? And it's prompted by a listener question. And here's the question. I'm disgusted with the apparent rot in the Episcopacy, beginning with McCarrick and abuse cover-ups running as high as the Vatican. I'm deeply concerned about talk of homosexuals in seminaries and the Vatican. I'm angry that the Pope doesn't seem to take this seriously. I want the church to be safe, holy, and respectable in the eyes of church members in the wider world. What can lay people do. Now, there are many broadcasts and articles and publications mentioning a number of things lay people can do, and many, if not most of these, are wise and needed recommendations. I am going to make what I call my primary recommendation on what to do it is simply the first of probably seven steps I'm going to be offering in this series, but listen carefully. Every one of the various steps that I'm recommending to laypeople people in the midst of this crisis are directly related to number one, step number one. In other words, everything I'm going to recommend comes out of this. This is the thing of supreme importance given the day in which we are living, okay? So what can lay people do? And by the way, these aren't going to be things that you've been hearing about mostly, okay? Number one, develop a thorough and living knowledge of the great apostasy, What does that have to do with anything? Well, that's what this broadcast is about. Some of you may know about the great apostasy, something like, it's just a a religious fact that you've heard somewhere, probably not uh, very much about. In fact, let me ask a question. When is the last time that you heard a homily, a teaching, or a broadcast describing the dangers associated with the great apostasy as taught in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Have you ever heard a homily or a teaching or a broadcast describing what goes on during the great apostasy? I think the chances are you may never have heard such a thing, and this is my answer to the question, what to do? You begin to develop a thorough and living knowledge of the great apostasy. But have you ever heard of it? It's very interesting that in the Sunday readings, Second Thessalonians is mentioned, the first two verses. The great apostasy begins to be described in verse 3. In other words, for the Sunday readings, when you have 2 Thessalonians as a reading, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, are the most important verses in the entire Bible regarding the great apostasy. And on Sunday readings, it comes to a very abrupt stop in verse 2 the verse right before the description of the great apostasy. So, on your Sunday readings, you will never hear of the great apostasy from St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What's worse, in case you go to daily Mass, there is a daily reading on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in ordinary time and I'm looking at the daily readings posted on the USCCB website, and what they do is go to First Thessalonians chapter 2, and they mention verse 2, and then they mention one-third of verse 3, and then stop and skip to verse 14. Whoever made this decision has corrupted Holy Scripture, have turned it right on its head. This is how it will read. Verse 2 uh, warns about a letter, allegedly from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is at hand. Let no one deceive you in any way. You read this, and it's like saying St. Paul is saying, um, you know, don't listen to anybody who says the day of the Lord might be at hand. Let no one deceive you in any way. That's one-third of verse 3. In other words, it intentionally cuts off the next two-thirds of the sentence, which turns it right around. St. Paul isn't saying, let be on your guard about someone deceive you about the day of the Lord is at hand. Jesus said, watch and pray, and that's, that's pretty much a Command from our Savior. No, the intent is that there's going to be some signs before the day of the Lord that have to occur first. And that's St. Paul's teaching. So you will never hear in the scripture readings and the hundreds of scripture readings in the three year cycle, you will not hear the verses talking about the great apostasy. So if you're wondering why you haven't heard much about it in homilies and teachings, Textbooks, show me this in a religious textbook used by children today, grade school children, high school children, confirmation classes. This was something important that the early church felt was important, that the church fathers felt was important, that the catechism of the Catholic Church feels is important, but we don't hear a word about This is what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, not the first third, but the whole verse 3 says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. The man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, is the Antichrist. And before the Antichrist, or coinciding with the rise of the Antichrist, will be a great rebellion or falling away. In Greek, the word is almost exactly how we spell apostasy. You take the Greek word apostasia, you drop the last two letters and put in a Y, and you have apostasy. This is what it is. An apostasy literally means to fall from, to fall away There's a Greek tool made by Germans. It's a multi-volume, and each volume is pretty thick. The world-renowned Greek dictionary of the New Testament Greek language. And it says for this word, apostasia, dropped from the USCCB's lectionary in verse three, it says, this will be the decline of Christians into error and sin, in the last days. And then it references Matthew 24, verses 11 and 12. What does that say? Jesus speaking, many, many false prophets will arise and lead many, many astray. And because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love, most men's love will grow cold. You see, In order to fall away, to commit apostasy, or in order to be led astray, you have to first be attached to Christ. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is warning about the crisis of the end times of a massive falling away from the faith. Before the end of human history, the world and the church, and the church we'll enter a period of massive falling away from the faith. Now, I need to be very clear about this. We are either in that period and I don't wouldn't fault anybody to think that we could be in that period, but I want to be very clear that we can't say with absolute absolute certainty that we are in that period. I'm no I don't know of any way to be able to say that with absolute certainty. So we're either in that period Or in the abuse crisis that we are seeing and the homosexual clergy crisis that we are seeing, we are enduring a dress rehearsal of the great apostasy, or perhaps in it themselves. And this isn't something void, although it's deleted from the lectionary. Uh, The Catechism of the Catholic Church says in paragraph 675, Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. And what's the footnote for section 675? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Catechism section 677. The church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover, when God's victory over the final unleashing of evil, and there's three references there to the book of Revelation. And then finally, the summary, Catechism, paragraph 680, the triumph of Christ's kingdom will not come about without one last assault by the powers of evil. Now, I don't think anyone listening to my voice who have been reading what's been going on lately will, will deny that we are under an assault by the powers of evil, the question is, is this the ultimate one described in Second Thessalonians chapter 3? What we want to do is have a living and thorough knowledge of the great apostasy because either our times are that time or our times are a dress rehearsal for that time. In either case, we want to know what time it is, what situation it is, and perhaps we can find out what to expect. I'd like to go to Second Thessalonians chapter three and show you something very important that relates to basically our day. In Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse three, I've already mentioned to you, says, "'Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, the second coming, will not come unless the rebellion or apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. That's the Antichrist. Now, in the next verse, verse 4, the Antichrist is characterized so we can identify him who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This guy is an egomaniac unlike any other in human history. There's been plenty of egomaniacs in human history, as well as in our contemporary world, but this Man, the Antichrist will really deify himself as, as well as trying to deceive the world into thinking we're divine, we're we're God. God isn't a true God. This self exaltation. Now, it's very interesting that if you go to the prophet Daniel, it parallels the prophet Daniel. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 parallel the teaching of St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. So we saw in verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2 this self-exaltation. He's going to exalt himself. He's going to sit in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. Well, this is nothing new. This is taught in the prophet Daniel chapter 11. I'm going to read from verse 36. It's almost at the end of chapter 11 of Daniel and the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself, this is exactly what Thessalonians says, and magnify himself above every god. This is Second Thessalonians 2, 4. And he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, present-day scholars will almost always say Ah, but these last few verses of Daniel chapter 11 are talking about that ancient figure Antiochus Epiphanes, who this is described in the days of the Maccabean revolt, who went actually into the temple and profaned the temple, had an abomination of desolation in the temple, uh, tried to deify himself and tried to ruin Jewish worship of God. Now, this is where modern interpreters of Scripture either flip into an either-or mentality saying, ah, it's either historical or it's future. They can't seem to bring themselves to believe in both. Very interesting, if you go to the earliest commentary on the prophet Daniel. It's by a church father named Hippolytus, who lived in the early days of the Christian church, probably wrote his commentary on the prophet Daniel about 230. This is the earliest preserved commentary on the book of Daniel that we have today. And guess what? He recognized it was perhaps an immediate reference, historical reference, to Antiochus Epiphanes, but he also recognized that through this historical figure was a preview of the final Antichrist. In other words, it was both and. It was historical, Antiochus, and it was futuristic for the Antichrist. And perhaps the greatest commentary on the book of Daniel for 1,100 years in the history of the church, the most consulted commentary on the book of Daniel was by St. Jerome. He wrote a complete commentary, and very interesting, (laughs) it took a Protestant to translate it. You can get it today, but in St. Jerome's commentary, He also recognized there's two abominations of desolations. There's this historical one, Antiochus Epiphanes. We all know about that. This isn't something new to modern scholars, but he also realized that that was a preview of the final coming of the Antichrist. Now, I'm saying all this to say that Daniel chapter 11, these last few verses— are identical to what St Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 this antichrist figure this son of perdition who exalts himself who deifies himself so we're tracking here we're tracking Daniel 10 11 and 12 with St Paul's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 now here is perhaps the most difficult passage in St. Paul's literature, at least as it applies to biblical prophecy. Actually, I have studied this passage for 50 years. I never hoped to have an answer, and here's what it says. St. Paul says in the next verse, verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you this, and, you know, obviously (laughs) they knew the conversation. We're historically separated from it. He says, and you know what is restraining him now. In other words, there's a restraint from this breakout of evil so that he may be revealed in his time. So before the great falling away, before the revealing of the Antichrist, there's there's a restraint keeping all this from popping out into human history. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He's been at work for every century of the church. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. There comes a point in history where God removes the restraint. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearance and his coming. So here it is. There is gonna come a day where there's going to be a massive falling away. And these aren't just the other guys. These are the Christians being led astray by false prophets, which means false prophets have to be in the church, which St. Paul warned about, St. Jude warned about, St. Peter warned about, read their epistles. You know, it's all over the place. False prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, will arise. It's been here through every century of the church. That's nothing new. But what will happen in the last days? There's a certain restraint on the evil one that God removes. There's some restrainer. Now, commentators, including my hero Saint Augustine, said we'll probably never know what this is. I've seen all kinds of uh, you know candidates for what the restrainer is and none were really, really satisfying until two or three years ago, I read a work that absolutely uh, just resonated in the deepest part of my mind after having looked at this for 50 years and basically thinking, I'll never get the answer to this. there was a book written, actually it was a PhD dissertation for Cambridge University by a man named Colin Nicole. And he wrote his dissertation and then he put in an appendix who the restrainer was. And that started to rock the world of New Testament scholars. Uh, The only Catholic scholar that I'm aware, who is aware of this is Dr. Peter Williamson who talked about this in a broadcast with Al Cresta. But you can also find Dr. Nicole's Ph.D. thesis appendix in a book called From Hope to Despair in Plessonica, and it's published by Cambridge University Press, and his appendix is also listed in Oxford University's Journal of Theological Studies. Both are very expensive. Both are worth every penny if you're serious about figuring out what this is, but here it goes. If you go back to Daniel chapter 12, you, you find that there is something being done by the archangel Michael, that causes the time of great tribulation for Israel to arise. In other words, we find in Daniel chapter 10, what goes on? We find the archangel Michael is restraining the demonic powers wanting to bring corruption and persecution to God's people. That's Daniel chapter 10. Michael is restraining evil. Then you get to Daniel chapter 11, and you find this outbreak of evil uh, through somebody that is going to exalt himself, exactly what's recorded in the end of Daniel 11, and then you go to the very first verse of Daniel 12. You're tracking with me, Daniel 10, 11. Now, the first verse in Daniel chapter 12 It says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered. In other words, we're going to reach the climax, the critical moment, the critical trial of human history, exactly what paragraphs 675, 677, and 680 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church is talking about. Now, just remember one very simple but very important point here. There were no chapter divisions or even verse numbers when Daniel wrote Daniel or any other book of the Bible. They didn't have, it went from paragraph to paragraph. Track with me one more time. I realize this is the third time, but Daniel 10, St. Michael is restraining. Daniel 11, we're warned about somebody who's going to exalt himself flip with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Somebody's going to exalt himself, that son of perdition, the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and then 2, 6, but you know what's restraining him now. St. Paul told them, but they didn't know. Well, who does the restraining two chapters before Daniel 12? Well, it's St. Michael. Then we have the description of the Antichrist in, at the very end of Daniel chapter 11, and then Michael. And it says in my translation, Revised Standard Version, at that time shall arise Michael. Now, this is where Dr. Nicole's PhD dissertation appendix comes into view. He shows that the Hebrew verb in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 does usually mean stand or arise. And so, you get the translation, like in the RSV, at that time shall arise Michael. But he says the Hebrew verb can also mean stand still, or stop, or cease moving. And if you want something that's probably familiar to you, uh, it's kind of like the military command. Somebody's about ready to launch a mission, and then the the command goes out over the radio, stand down. In other words, withdraw after a state of military readiness. In other words, he is restraining Michael, Daniel 10. There is going to be the ultimate bad guy, the Antichrist, Daniel 11. And at that time, Michael shall stand down. By God's decree, he's going to let evil have its way. Why would God do that? Well, we get hints of this in the book of Job. For some reason, God allows evil to have its way, to have a test, so to speak. But it's very interesting that Pope Leo Thirteenth in 1888 saw a vision of Satan able to have a century to try to take out the church and as soon as he saw that vision, what did he go and immediately do? He composed the prayer to St. Michael the archangel. And he in that prayer, he talked about that cruel, that ancient serpent who deceives the whole world. This primeval enemy and slayer of men now wanders about with all the multitude of wicked spirits invading the earth in order to blot out the name of God. Pope Paul VI said Satan's smoke has made its way into the temple of God. And Archbishop Vagano said, and when he was asked, why is all this crisis happening in the church? Because the cracks which Paul VI spoke of, from which he said the smoke of Satan would infiltrate the house of God, have become chasms. The devil is working overtime, and not to admit that or to turn our face away from it would be our greatest sin. So what do we have to do? Have a living, thorough knowledge of the great apostasy. I'm Steve Wood, your host. You've been listening to episode 208 of Faith and Family. Please join us next time. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.